Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Allentown's Sermon Podcast. As we approach God's Word, let's take a prayerful breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. Listen to God's Word this day. Uh, my name is Brenda Remp. I play with the band. I'm a youth leader, and I'm currently serving as a deacon here at First Presbyterian. Uh, won't you join us for our prayer for illumination? Prepare our hearts, O God, by the power of the Holy Spirit to hear your word and follow in the way of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. We turn to God's word this morning. Our first scripture is from the book of Genesis, reading from the first chapter, verses one through eight and 26 through 27. Let us listen to God's word. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. So God called the dome sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Our second scripture this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew, reading from the sixth chapter, verses 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what, it, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can, you, and can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour of your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, he will not much more clothe you, you of little faith. Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble enough for today. 
And our third scripture is from the book of Hebrews, reading from the 11th chapter, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the next four weeks, I'm going to do a series on conversations with skeptics. And I can assure you and probably relieve you to know that I don't plan to draw, draw on my high school debate team talents. Instead, just want to grapple with some of the questions, some of the good points raised by skeptics as we think through our faith in modern times. Let us pray. Oh Lord, it is your word we want, we seek, we need to hear. And so we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart may grapple with that word and hear it and follow it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In a modern scientific world, how can you have faith? Edward O. Wilson was one of the most outstanding scientists in the United States until he died in 2021. In his book on human nature, he confidently claimed that science can explain all that needs to be explained, including religion as a human-created phenomenon. Theology's days are numbered, he contended. Richard Dawkins has written a number of books on evolution in which he contends that modern evolutionary theory proves that there is no God. Dawkins states that he cannot imagine how anyone in the scientific age can think that there is a place for faith. Faith is the great cop-out, he writes, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. But it's not just the published and academic scientists who are skeptics about faith. Most of us know people, whether or not they're scientists, who have a hard time with faith in God in our modern scientific world. They trust their senses, what they can see, what they can hear, and what they can touch. And the idea of a God who is real but invisible is hard for them to swallow. How do we respond to such friends and family members as well as the Wilsons and Dawkins of the world. Some Christians respond by being anti-science. Whether the issue is evolution or climate change or vaccines or cancer treatments, they have no problem ignoring science. It's all a matter of faith for them, and they blame science for what a lot, is, a lot of what is wrong in the modern world. For example, one Christian writer argues that when science and the Bible differ, science has simply misinterpreted its data. He goes on not only to debunk any kind of evolutionary theory, but even to blame it for everything. Evolutionary thought is basically responsible for the chaotic moral and social disintegrations that have been accelerating everywhere in our midst and society. Is that the only response that faithful Christians can make? I don't know about you, but in many of these debates and battles over religion and science, I feel like I'm in no man's land, standing between two warring sides, firing away from well-fortified positions. And I'm not ready to join either side. 
How then might we respond to the science-oriented skeptics in our midst? First, to the science-oriented skeptics, I have this to say, beware of bad theology. When you say that faith, unlike scientific theories, cannot be tested and proved in the way that scientific theories can, I say, guilty as charged, you are correct. I often wish that faith really could be proved through our senses, that everyone could all hear the voice of God, that somehow there would be a message in the clouds that God says, I am here, or that we could film Jesus doing some great miracle that we could all experience and can be convinced that he is the son of God. But that's not the way God has decided to work. And in any case, that is not the way that humans work. God could speak audibly to all or shape words in the sky, but we would find some reason to explain it away if we are already skeptics. Think about it. Jesus, after all, did walk and talk and do miracles in front of people 2,000 years ago, but apparently a majority of people who saw and heard him could not believe that he was the Messiah of the Jews, much less of the world. The fact is, seeing is not enough. As Hebrews reminds us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. We do not believe by sight, but by faith. Whether there is a God or not is not something that we can prove through our senses. So when skeptics say you cannot prove faith by science or reason, I agree. But when skeptics say that faith is no longer relevant or necessary in our modern scientific world, I have to say, whoa, hold on there. When people like Wilson and Dawkins say that theology's days are numbered or faith is a cop-out, they're not doing science. Those statements cannot be proved through scientific experimentation or observation either. Statements like those are nothing more than an assertion of faith. In this case, faith and science. Science and theology are addressing different questions. Science can tell us how creation has unfolded, but it cannot tell us why it was created or by whom. Science can tell us about DNA and the physical structures and processes of humans, but science cannot tell us what it means to be human or what it takes to have a meaningful life. Science can give us a definition of life. It cannot show us how we are to live. Those are the questions that faith and theology answer. When people like Wilson and Dawkins contend that faith is unreasonable, you also have to ask them, how reasonable is atheism? Consider this, and I can assure you this doesn't come from me because I can never fully understand it. According to the best cosmologists, in the early moments of the universe following the Big Bang, matter and antimatter were created in almost equivalent amounts. Almost, but not exactly. For about every billion pairs of quarks and antiquarks, there was one extra quark. If there were not this slight asymmetry, planets, stars, and people would never have come into existence. One Christian science, Francis Collin writes, 
In fact, there are 15 physical constants, he points out, such as the speed of light and the rate of the universe expansion that have to be exactly what they are, no more, no less, for there to be a universe capable of supporting complex life. Is it reasonable to think this is merely an accident? Science and theology may be exploring the same creation, but they do some from very different points of view. Science domain is to explore nature, Collins writes. Religion's domain is the spiritual world, a realm not possible to explore with the tools and language of science. Like love, it must be examined with the heart, the mind, and the soul. In a scientific world, how can we have faith? By recognizing the limits to the answers that science can give us. And by committing not just our minds, but our hearts and souls to the quest for a relationship with the one who is not just our maker, but also our redeemer and ever-present companion. Second, to the science skeptics in the church, I want to say, beware of bad science. To be sure, we Christians always want to recognize the limits to what science can address and answer, and we always want to claim the centrality of the Bible for our faith. But in doing so, I don't think we ever want to engage in bad science. That is, claiming on a scientific basis what has not been scientifically proven or ignoring the scientific evidence because we don't like it. Why is there such a danger in relying on bad science? Well, it can impact our health if we don't listen and when we go to the doctor's office, it can impact the health of the planet. But it also can negatively impact our witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if those who stand outside the church think that we are getting bad science from the scriptures, they're likely to dismiss the rest of the Bible as an outdated book of errors as well. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. It is a theological library. Church theologians have been pointing that out long since before modern science arose. 1,600 years ago, the great theologian Augustine wrote in his commentary on the book of Genesis, usually even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of the world, about the motion and orbit of the stars and so forth. Now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for the infidel to hear a Christian presumably given the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people see vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. 1,600 years ago that was written. Then the question was the Genesis picture of the sky as a big dome separating water above from water below. And when you read Genesis 1 closely, that's what it's talking about. The questions change, but the underlying issue hasn't. David Wilcox is an evangelical Christian, a scientist, and used to teach at Eastern University. And he once wrote as an evangelical Christian that the biggest impediment to witnessing to non-Christians enrolled in graduate science programs were those Christian leaders who argued for a science that these graduate students understood to be blatantly wrong. So in response to the debates between some Christians and some scientists, let us say this. While there may be conflicts between Christians and scientists, 
there really is no conflict between faith and science because truth is truth. The truth gained by science may be different from the truth gained from the scriptures, but there can be no real conflict ultimately because God is the source of both. Where there's apparent conflict, it's either because our scientific theories are wrong or our interpretations of the scripture are wrong. As we said before, Genesis 1 is not a scientific textbook. I encourage you to read it and chapter 2, the Adam and Eve story, in its entirety. We believe that Genesis is inspired and speaks the truth, but it speaks that truth more in the way of poetry than in the way of science, which means that it must be read differently from a science textbook. Genesis, again, is not trying to answer how our world came into being or when the questions asked by science. What Genesis is trying to answer is who created it and what our creator is like. Science may tell us that our DNA is 98% like that of chimpanzees or whatever the latest percentage is. Genesis and the scriptures tell us that we alone are made in the image of God. As John Calvin wrote 500 years ago, he who would learn astronomy, let him go elsewhere than to what Genesis has to say about waters above the heaven. When we hear about the latest discoveries of astronomy or evolutionary biology, the Christian need not be prepared for combat. Instead, we can simply say with awe and wonder, oh, that's how God did it. Calvin and Augustine knew that science and faith are not mortal enemies. Instead, they're meant to go hand in hand. In fact, there are many historians of science who think that Christian faith formed the foundation for modern science because it was Christian faith with the idea of a creator who was separate from creation and the idea of humankind made in the image of God who could understand that creation and the idea that there was order to creation, all that coming together made possible science. As a geologist and former president of Cornell University, Frank Rhodes has written, people today might accept the validity of the presuppositions of science simply because science works. But the pioneers of science could make no such appeal to past successes. They justified their assumptions on the basis of their belief in a personal and a rational and a dependable God. Science and faith go hand in hand because both need humility. Humility is required, as another Christian scientist has written, because we should always be aware that our ob objectivity is compromised and our reasoning is limited. We often get things wrong. The history of the church is replete with examples of misinterpretation inscription of scripture and actions which make us cringe now. I was born in the South. And I know that there were church leaders and Presbyterian preachers who tried to justify first slavery and later segregation by those scriptures. But it's true of science as well. For example, in 1847, the physician Ignaz Schemmelweis, hope I'm pronouncing it right, studied midwives and physicians and found that one was washing their hands, one group was washing their hands regularly and the other was not. And, the, and maternal health in pregnancy and birth was compromised, and there was a big difference. He demonstrated that hand-washing makes a difference. 
Maybe because it's an all-male medical, medical establishment versus a female midwives, but for whatever reason, the med medical establishment rejected it. Not only did they re reject it, they ridiculed him. And when he was insistent on making the case, he was put in an insane asylum where he died. We all are in danger of getting things wrong. Science and faith also walk hand in hand when it comes to wonder over the marvels of creation and the need to cherish and care for that creation. Whenever I want to rekindle wonder, it is to the writing of scientists and poets that I go. And we Bible followers would do well to listen to science about how to be stewards of the creation that Genesis tells us that we are. In closing, in 1530, Nicholas Copernicus caused quite a star when he stir when he published his book on the revolutions. Because in that book, he contended that the earth revolved around the sun. His conclusion went in the face of the teachings of both science and the Catholic Church. But for Copernicus and his supporters, many of whom were members of the new Protestant churches trying to reform the church, Copernicus' discovery about the earth going around the sun celebrated rather than diminished the grandeur of God. This is what Copernicus himself wrote about science and faith. To know the mighty works of God, to comprehend his wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate in degree the wonderful working of his laws, surely all this must be a pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the Most High. 500 years later, that still makes sense to me. Amen. Thank you for listening to First Presbyterian Church of Allentown's sermon podcast. We hope you'll join us for worship on Sunday morning. For more information about our congregation and our ministries, please contact the church office. Now go in peace.